0: I'm interested in what just happened in the UK, where you know this really anti-politician Jeremy Corbyn did way better than anybody expected. I mean, like as far from the rock as you could get (laughs) as a politician. You're not not going to get me off the rock, Naomi. I'm going (laughs) to. I look, look. If 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 the choices are the rock and Joe Biden, I'm 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 with you. I'm actually with you. But I think there, I think there. The choices (laughs)
1: might be that, which is very frightening.
2: From Topic and Earwolf, this is Politically Reactive. I'm W. Kamau Bell. And I'm Jesus Christ
1: doppelganger, Hari
2: Kundabolu. This show where two comedians try to make sense of politics in America.
1: Some would say we use the words comedians and sense very loosely.
2: Today's guest is the acclaimed journalist, activist, and best-selling author, and I would say woke white lady, Naomi Klein.
1: Naomi Klein has authored several international bestsellers over the last two decades. Her 2000 book, No Logo, transformed the debate on globalization.
2: Her 2007 book, The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism, challenged the way that people think about capitalism and austerity.
1: And her 2014 book, this Changes Everything, Capitalism versus Climate Change, debunk the myths clouding the climate debate. Essentially, capitalism isn't going to save us. It's going to dig us into a deeper hole.
2: Unless we make lots of money, right? Right? We just need to make lots and lots of money.
1: Yeah, you just got to put all the money in the hole. Yeah. And then you can be on top of the money. You could, like, yeah. Scrooge McDuckett. <laughs>
2: and we've caught Naomi right before she releases her next book, and I'm sure the resistance is going to love this, and we'll talk about that. It's called No Is Not Enough, Resisting Trump's Shock Politics and Winning the World We Need. Naomi likes titles with a lot of words in them, just like I do in my book.
1: In 2016, she was awarded Australia's prestigious Sydney Peace Prize. Here she is at the award ceremony.
0: If we want to defend against the likes of Donald Trump, and every country has their own Trump we must urgently confront and battle racism and misogyny in our culture and in our movements and in ourselves. This cannot be an afterthought. It cannot be an add-on. It is central to how someone like Trump could rise to power.
2: And earlier this year, Naomi became senior correspondent at The Intercept, and just today she released a video called How to Resist Trump's Shock Doctrine.
0: Step 5 advance a bold counter plan. At their best, all the previous steps can only slow down attempts to exploit crisis. If we actually want to defeat this tactic, opponents of the shock doctrine need to move quickly to put forward a credible alternate plan. It needs to get at the root of why these sorts of crises are hitting us with ever greater frequency. And that means we have to talk about militarism, climate change, and deregulated markets. More than that, we need to advance and fight for different models, ones grounded in racial, economic, and gender justice.
1: Oh my God, she is so good. We're going to talk to Naomi about how we got to Trump, how bad it's going to get, and what we can do now. It's all coming up on Politically Reactive. Hey everybody, it's Harry. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, We're recording this on Tuesday, June 13th, and our guest today, it's very exciting, it's Naomi Klein. But first of all, how are you, Kamau?
2: I'm doing good. The Bay Area is doing good. The Golden State is doing good. Oh, what happened? (laughs) (laughs) Do they not show the NBA Finals in New York because they don't want to hurt your feelings?
1: Congratulations to the Golden State Warriors! I, you know, I, I support the Warriors because my mom is a huge Warriors fan, which is still strange and amazing to me. Uh, so we watched uh, Game Five yesterday together, and the Bay Area champions, the Golden State Warriors, uh, you know, won it again.
2: And yes, the Warriors did win, but as always, politics gets into everything. Because this morning on Twitter, there was a rumor that the Golden State Warriors team had unanimously decided to not go to the White House. So I retweeted it. There's articles written about it. And then later, the Warriors released a statement saying, we haven't even thought about it yet. We're still drunk from champagne. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, so, uh, also, we haven't been invited yet. You know, <laughs> that's because, right, right, you know, right. it's hard to turn on an invitation that hasn't showed up. But, uh, you know. Josh
1: Patchouli is worried about getting deported if he wants oh, to not go right, to That's House. right.
2: Yeah, so, uh, they're saying they will make that decision when the time comes. But, It got me and Harry thinking about uh, an NBA player from the 90s named Craig Hodges.
1: Craig Hodges was part of the 92 Bulls championship team. And when they went to the White House to meet George H.W. Bush, that's Bush one, uh, he brought a letter with him of things he wanted the president to work on, especially focused on uh, people of color in the inner cities, poverty and it was a huge controversy, and he never played again. Yes, so, no,
2: not in the NBA. He started to play in leagues like one of his basketball teams he played on after that had the word "shampoo" in their name. So it was definitely not the NBA or any league in this country for a while for him.
1: Uh, Craig just uh, wrote a book called "Long Shot: The Triumphs and Struggles of an NBA Freedom Fighter," and certainly we see him as one for the stand he decided to take in 1992. And cons- you know, and if the Warriors are actually considering. Taking a similar stand or some kind of stand, it seemed like Craig was the first person we should get in touch with. So let's call him.
2: Yeah. And also, let's talk some B ball. He did play on the Bulls Championship <sighs> with Michael Jordan. Yeah. You know that. yeah Remember the 90s? Yeah, right. Remember the 90s basketball? Let's give him a call. We're honored to be with our guest, Craig Hodges. This morning, me and Harry woke up, saw the rumor that the Golden State Warriors were not going to go to the White House, and we both were like, Craig Hodges, let's call Craig Hodges. So thank you for being on the show.
3: <laughs> I appreciate you, man. I appreciate the work that you've been doing, too, man. I watch you from afar. Keep up the good work, brother.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I just want to let you know, as I said before, I did graduate from high school in Chicago, and I was there during the time you played on the Bulls, so I have a lot of memories of you uh, on those teams
1: winning those championships
3: that's cool man we did we were the city was the city was totally behind us man
1: yeah and Craig you should know that I, I grew up in New York City during the same year so uh, this was Kamau's idea <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah man. we had we had some great times in the garden man
1: <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm glad you had some great times back then Craig. <laughs> <laughs> yeah man
3: that's cool <laughs>
1: Well I mean it looks like the warriors Craig aren't going to be going to the white house or maybe they will but the rumor is that they're not going to when you made the choice in 92 uh, to give a letter to George H W Bush how did you get to that decision why did you si- decide to do it what was in the letter like
3: well and, and did well, anybody for, else know Yeah well for me I would um you know first of all thank you guys for giving me the opportunity uh for me I grew up as a uh, child of the movement, and all during elementary school and high school, we wrote letters to our Congress people to the president, so that wasn't my first letter to the President. you know I wrote them in junior high and high school, and that kind of stuff so just it was for me it was a natural progression of things um I, we went to the White House October first, I thought we were going to go right after we won in June, so I had had some stuff written for june, and then as as it went on, and we finally found out we were going to go during training camp. You know, some of my ideas changed, and then the night before we went, I wrote a handwritten letter asking President Bush to consider, you know, the issues of disenfranchised people, poor people, people of color, and specifically to the issues of the black community, where I'm from, and that, you know, we're not coming to the White House begging for anything, but we're just coming to ask you on behalf of those who ain't going to get a chance to come. And Muhammad Ali was my hero growing up, and I liked the fact that he stood on behalf of the people, so for me, it was just you know, almost a cultural imperative, man. I studied black studies, so I have, when I have opportunities like that, I have to make the most of it, and it wasn't trying to show the president up or anything. It was just a matter of speaking on my people who weren't there at that at that point in time.
1: Did the team know that you were going to give a letter, or was that something that you kept yeah, close yeah, to? Yeah, no, chest? Every,
3: everybody knew. One thing about me, man, was, you know, when we talked this transparency thing, that was me, man. My teammates were family, you know. Phil was family, so... And going, everybody knew I was going to wear a dashiki. I wore dashikis for the entire playoffs up until we won. And then when we went to the White House, I had a, I had one made when we were in L.A. for the championship. So it was it was known, and and none of my teammates or the organization, they knew my positions all along. <laughs> and it was it wasn't anything new to them. It was more new to the national and international media because we were on that stage when we got to the White House.
2: So now there's a lot of talk with Trump, like there's like when the Patriots went, like several players just decided not to go. And there's always talk Mm -hmm. in the the movement about like, do you boycott? Is it better to boycott or is it better to show up and sort of like, as you did, sort of make your make your feelings known? You know, where do you feel? Where do you stand on that?
3: Well, my position is that, you know, literally, you know, getting a chance to go to the White House should be everybody's. Every American citizen, you should get a chance to go do that. And The fact that you won a championship and you want to maybe boycott, that's fine. That's your that's uh, your position. But at the same time, I feel like, you know, you should get a chance to go get to experience that, man, because you did win a championship. You are getting an invite. You can go, but I feel like you can go and speak on behalf of people or or you can choose not to go. That's not really my position to say. But right now, the way I feel is that you can be impactful – in either situation, if you go, go carrying a message. If you don't go, have a message when you don't go. And that's that's where I'm at, man. Especially with the the um, social media safety blanket, as I call it, that you have a lot of people that can back you. So, what would happen if if, if all the players? Went to their social media and say we're getting ready to go to the White House and what type of grievances do you want us to take to the president? That might be a cool way to do it. You know, oh, it's wow. a lot of Oh, that's ways amazing.
1: To, that's a great. It would be a
3: lot of idea. It'd be a lot of ways to go about it. You know, as far as carrying the message of somebody, didn't just yourself, and you know, so. For me, it's always been a thing, man, and that's why I feel like I was blessed to play team sports because I look at the movement as a team thing. It's not no one individual, and we saw that whenever we put up a leader, our leaders are assassinated, so it can't be no one thing going on. <laughs> so we have to have we have to have this team, team mindset where leadership is concerned, and I feel like those players, especially a player, Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, I feel like... If they go and they go with a, a particular message, man, these young folks gonna honor that and gonna applaud them for that. Then if you don't go, make sure you, maybe you have uh, some type of session where people are seeing it at the same time. I don't know, man, but. If we have to, we have to come up with solutions, and everybody has their choice in making what solutions they feel necessary, man.
2: I, I you know, it's funny. I've read a lot about you, and I, I certainly, like I said, I followed your career, and know you know you're a political person. And I just, I, you know, it's funny. I had in my mind, I had remembered it as you not going, and it wasn't until today that I was like, oh, that's right. He showed a, he had a letter, like you actually, right. you actually showed up with a letter. I think that's something. People sort of think there's just sort of one thing or the other. Either don't go and have a statement, or go and be quiet and just sort of get your photo taken. Right. But I think I sort and, of totally forgot. Oh, there's the other way: go with a statement or with an with an agenda. Yes,
3: and with a, and with a message, man. And I think you know the message has to has to be consistent now, man. The 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 amount of death and murder that's happening in inner cities across America, man. It's got to be something that's got to be done economically. It's economics. If we take the economics out of Beverly Hills pretty soon, they're going to be fighting against each other. So it's a matter of us putting necessary resources where they need it, man, and let these young folks realize that we really care about them and not just lip service.
1: In 92, Craig, I mean, that was the last year you played after you'd Mm -hmm. given the letter uh, to Bush. First of all, do you feel like you were you know, blacklisted as a result? And also, do you think what's happening to Colin Kaepernick right now is another example of, you know, a, a league blacklisting a player for having a strong uh, political point?
3: No question about it, man. And and that's the, that's the sad part about being in 2017, and we still have the ability for a group of people to actually ostracize somebody for making a living for their families. You know, when I was going through it, it was a thing where, you know, it was all speculative. It was always, man, Hodges, he got sour grapes because he can't play no more, as opposed to, hey, man, let's look at it statistically. My statistics add up and, and, and range with the top rank-and-file players in the league, so why shouldn't I get an opportunity? Likewise, it happened to Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, who was probably at the prime of his career when he wouldn't do what they wanted him to do where the National Anthem was concerned. Colin takes his knee, and now he, he's at the at the point of maybe losing – over five-year a $100 million. What could that impact inner cities across America, centers across the world? What could you do with a $100 million contract with his consciousness? And that's the part that, to me, is just crazy when you think that someone somewhere is sitting saying, don't give him a chance because he wants to do good for people. That's so evil to me, man. And so we got a lot of work to do, and I, I applaud Colin for taking – a strong, courageous stance, and I would hope that the NFL Players Union would back him up. You know, and that's the that's the that's the part that we have to really start to look at is those entities that we play we pay dues to that don't stand up for it because that happened to me. My the NBA Players Association wouldn't have anything to say in my position when I was going through it. So I, don't, I expect it to be the same with made with uh, the National Football League Players Association. But Harry Edwards, who has been a, a strong uh, proponent for what Colin is going through has been doing a lot on his behalf. So hopefully, the the executive director, the, the executive director of the players union, would say something to the league about it.
2: Yeah. Um, our last question, my last question: If you were allowed to enter the NBA three point shooting contest now, could you still win?
3: This is the thing. Okay, for me, I could I could compete, but the competition would have to be just allow me, you know, just allow me to shoot in arenas. If I get to shoot in, a, in an arena environment as opposed to shooting in a high school, I could compete. So when I went back and competed, when they wouldn't let me shoot, I was shooting in high school arenas, man. It's a total difference. So when you go oh. out there, and, and, and you feel me, man, as opposed to shooting in a place that is, is cavernous compared to some place that's like a hut. <laughs> a yeah. Man. <laughs> so you're saying
2: if they let you into NBA arenas to practice, you, could, you think you could take the three-point title? I could be in there with them. <laughs> well, we we are so happy that you were on the show. Happy for a couple reasons. Happy to, for you to speak about politics and sports and politics in general and how we can all show up with a political statement. It's not just about boycotting. And also, we're super happy to talk about basketball on this podcast. Our listeners don't want us to do yes. it, but we're happy to talk about it. So thank you. <laughs> That's
3: cool. Yes. Thank you, man. <laughs> Take care. Thanks, Greg. All right. Y'all be peaceful. Thanks.
1: Thank you. Oh, my God. That was so great. I am so glad we did that. I knew it was going to be amazing, but that was just – there was so much purpose in why he did what he did, and it's really inspiring to be able to talk to him.
2: And also we know that uh, politically reactive former guest Dave Zirin, uh, political sports reporter, will definitely share this episode because Craig Hodges is in it. So that's one extra retweet for, for, for us. <laughs> And before we move on to our interview with Naomi Klein, there's a little bit of business we have to discuss. So uh, many of you have hit us up on social media to ask us uh, our thoughts on uh, Bill Maher.
1: <laughs> and- Who recently said the uh, N-word on his television show.
3: Wow. Um- I've got to get to Nebraska more. I- <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. We'd love to have you work in the fields with us. <laughs> work in the fields? That's
2: part of that. that's
0: Senator. <laughs> i'm a house nigga no it's it's a joke thank you
2: so yeah so many of you have asked us our opinions on that we actually talked about that in, in our an upcoming episode it was the live episode we did uh in san francisco uh so we do spend some time talking about that but a lot of you who listen to this podcast know that we've been on this bill maher uh how do we how do we say it on the show Harry? i can't remember Fuck Bill Maher. Yeah, we've been on the fuck Bill Maher train for a long time, so and we thought, why don't we put together a supercut of the greatest hits of the times we said fuck Bill Maher or put Bill Maher down on the podcast? Let's listen. Let's do talk about the Bill Maher thing because on our show we have a sort of I don't know if it's a mantra that we say that it's stuck in with throughout the answer, where we say fuck Bill Maher.
1: Should we say our catchphrase? It's been a minute. Well, uh, yeah, it's been a minute. What's our catchphrase? Oh, oh it's a uh, fuck Bill Maher. I believe that's our catchphrase. <laughs> Uh, one thing I will say about Bill Maher, I know that the the theme here is "fuck Bill Maher," but um, <laughs> but he he just seems to be going descending
0: more and more into this place where what motivates him is. Uh, Hate toward the people who are saying wait a minute this is bigotry or you don't hate all
1: religions equally and that, that's that's the part of it that I think really gets into territory that that's dangerous
2: Bill Maher was was really defending uh, Ann Coulter he had Milo on the Bill show
1: <laughs> he's been trash for like a really long time so I'm like Yeah, he continues to be garbage. And everyone's like,
0: I can't believe it. I'm like, that's his brand. His brand is trash. It's like...
2: (laughs) Yeah, actually, if you don't like the podcast, please listen to Bill Maher. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I don't know why you're wasting our time with us. Yeah, I got no problem with that. If you don't like me, you probably will like Bill Maher. That's totally legitimate. I don't have a problem with that. And based
1: on what you wrote, I love the fact that listening to this is is almost like fingernails to a chalkboard for 45 minutes. I like the fact it makes you feel bad.
2: (laughs) We were there for Islamophobia. We were there for misogyny. I was literally there for racism one day when I was on Bill Maher.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He so. wasn't nice to you at all.
2: No, here's the thing about that that I think is so funny. That was the worst experience I've ever had on TV. And I interviewed the Klan. So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> to be fair to, to uh, Real Time with Bill Maher, n- you know, giving not giving, um, you know, uh, a heinous person a spotlight every week. I mean, the show does do that every week because he's hosting it. Fuck Bill Maher. I don't know. Hashtag fuck Bill Maher, but hashtag don't fuck Bill Maher.
0: Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. yes, yes.
1: Man, that still brings me so much joy. I'm glad (laughs) we did that. (laughs) <laughs> that has not gotten old at all
2: no so again uh in an up in an upcoming episode from the uh cluster in san francisco you'll hear our thoughts and phoebe robinson from two built queens thoughts and lindy west uh past guest on political reactive her thoughts too so uh that's coming up on a upcoming episode but we just want to let you know yeah we saw it we heard about it uh but now let's get to our interview with naomi klein
1: This is very exciting. Naomi Klein just released a book called No Is Not Enough. We're about to interview her. This is going to be great. Oh, and one more thing, guys. We got T-shirts. You
2: can finally get some of our swag. Go to podswag.com slash PR or podswag.com slash politically reactive. Buy a T-shirt. Let us know what you think. We had a lot of arguments about them.
1: And what better way to segue to Naomi Klein than some blatant capitalism? Here's Naomi. (laughs)
0: You know the episode I was I really remember is after the after the election when you had Jake Tapper on and I just really feel like he said the truest thing mm. about uh, about why why the Democrats lost the election? It was just like, they did. They have to make that much money. <laughs> do you remember that? Yep. I do remember that. Just like, can you, I wish he would say that all the time. On CNN. <laughs> that's, I
2: do remember that because I was like, because when he was like, the reason they lost, I was. It was like a very pregnant moment. Like, what was it? What was it? And yeah. that was not what I was expecting him to say.
0: The truth. I yeah, know the truth. Should yeah, I yeah. Think? Or
2: just the. Tr- yeah. I hadn't even. Well, or that's one a, of the truths. Yeah, one of the truths. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, but I remember it because I was in a camper van in Australia.
1: <laughs> wow! <laughs> you were, oh, you were you were listening to us in Australia?
0: Yeah, because I was in Australia when when the election happened. Cause I was there, um, I was there for a month. I was getting the Sydney Peace Prize, and and um, and we made this talk about the Great Barrier Reef. And we promised our son Toma that after we finished, we would rent a VW camper van, which is like his dream come true because he's obsessed with camper vans. And we would like go camping, and and um, and and then. And it was like the worst trip because we were so sad. It was like it started on November the tenth, and it was just, um, oh man. There was one moment where because I was I was writing this op-ed for the New York Times about um, how Hillary, you know, didn't Hillary's loss didn't mean all women could lose. And they had solicited the piece from me, but then they were like, "We're not going to run it." And then they um, emailed back, and they were like, "Actually, we changed our mind. We want to run it." And I, th- uh. I said to Avi, "So the New York Times is going to run my fucking article." And and the whole trip. My four-year-old just kept going, the New York Times is running my fucking article. <laughs> 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 it was
3: the
0: first time he said fuck. I,
1: oh, nice. So yesterday, I had the privilege of um, interviewing you publicly uh, for the release of your book, uh, No Is Not Enough, at Cooper Union. Um, and I met your your son, Tom. And the first thing your son says to me is, you tell jokes? And I wanted to tell him, it depends on who you ask. But (laughs) I like the fact he was like, clearly he pays close attention to everything that is being said.
0: Yeah, I have to be very careful around him and I'm not. But
1: But at the same time, like a kid that's talking uh, about like democracy and justice and environmentalism at four, there are worse things.
0: Yeah, I don't know if he's actually talking about that. <laughs> he was talking. He was t- talking about the fact I had explained that it was possible for someone's job to be to tell jokes, and he found that really exciting.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, ask. Uh, can you explain that to my mom as well?
2: It would be very <laughs>
0: happy to. Yeah, that job
1: sounds starts exciting when you
2: think about it, mm-hmm. but then ten, fifteen, twenty years in, <laughs> it's like, it's man, like I should have really studied in college. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Another joke.
2: Well, uh, we'll let's move right on into this interview. Thank you for coming today.
0: Very happy to be here. I oh,
2: love the show. Yes. Yeah, we, we, we could have tested you, but let's, let's move to the problem at hand. Maybe when things get better, we can test you about all the episode knowledge. Uh, so Indeed. I just want to start with this. You have very famously written, before your new book, three books about basically warning us how bad things could get if we're not careful. And things got that bad. <laughs> so are you mad that more people didn't read your books? <laughs>
0: um, you know i feel I feel really lucky that that as many people read them as did. Um, I you know, there is one book I wrote called The Shock Doctrine that I you know i I guess I did feel like... It's important that people take a look at this book in this moment, um, because I think we have to be prepared for for uh, for how the Trump administration would exploit a shock. Um, But, you know, I don't know, like the whole idea uh, that that Trump is a shock, I think, is. It's, it's just gives people this plausible deniability, you know? It's just like, well, if he's a shock, then he has nothing to do with us. He has nothing to do mm. with the culture. He's like a Martian from outer space, you know? So I, ha- I have been writing about many of the trends that led us to this moment, and, but so have many, many people, you know? I mean, Trump's products aren't made in America, but Trump is made in America. Mm. <laughs> like, he is a made-in-American product.
1: I mean, can you... Th- Talk to us about what The Shock Doctrine is for people who are unfamiliar with, uh, with your earlier book.
0: Yeah. So 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 The Shock Doctrine is a phrase I came up with um, about 11 years now, when or a little bit more, when I was reporting uh, on uh, the invasion of Iraq, and um, I was writing for Harper's Magazine, writing for The Nation, and... You know, I'm somebody who's focused more on economics than I am on war. I'm not a war correspondent. I have been writing for a decade about the underside of the promise of corporate globalization. Right, that there was this promise that we were all going to be living in this, um, you know. One world village. That I mean, that was the sort of rhetoric of of of, um, of the nineteen nineties. That that this single sort of American style of consumerism was going to be exported to every corner of the globe, and and happiness would ensue. You know, so I had been writing about about this as a journalist for a long time. My first book, No Logo, was. About how, you know, beneath the veneer of corporate branding, you we've seen an explosion of sweatshop labor around the world, all kinds of human rights abuses, um, and and you know, a kind of aggressive marketing that was really waging war on public space, on the public sphere. Everything was being taken over by marketing, including schools, you know, where little kids go. And and so, so that's what um, I I had been writing about, but the reason why. I was focused on Iraq was that this very radical idea about how you should organize an economy, privatize everything, deregulate everything, create a kind of corporate utopia, that vision was imposed on Iraq under cover of war. Um, and I called it the shock doctrine because the, sh- the, the, the shock of the invasion, which was branded shock and awe by the U.S. military, and it even had its own logo, you know, on all, all the all the networks. Mm. Um, you know, it was designed to be as disorienting as possible for Iraqis. And um, then, in this window of disorientation after the invasion of the window of emergency, forget disorientation. I mean, people were fighting for their lives. Um, they the the US uh, under the leadership of of a guy named Paul Bremer who was the US mm-hmm. appointed envoy in in Baghdad's green zone imposed what is called economic shock therapy, rapid-fire privatization of Iraq's economy. Uh, the plan was to get rid of you know, subsidies for basic goods, to have absolute free trade. Uh, Paul Bremer famously stood, stood up. He used to wear, his uniform was like he'd wear a business suit and combat boots, right? And that was like, that's the uniform of the new economy. And he said, Iraq is open for business. And this was just like a month after the invasion. So I went there to These cover like the, the economic the side of it. like the ghosts of demons
1: it. past. Like I had forgotten about Paul Bremer for a brief moment, and it's like... There he is. But
0: you know what? Trump is a lot like Paul Bremer. You know, it's like with the signing of the executive orders and just kind of um, just cloistered in, in the White House. I, you know, I I feel like his governing style is has more in common with Paul Bremer than some, many U.S. presidents right. before him. <laughs> he should start wearing combat boots with his business suits. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what the shock doctrine is, using using shocks to impose economic shock therapy and You know, the the history I told in the shock doctrine, which begins with uh, the overthrow of a democratically elected government in in Chile, uh, the, uh, the socialist government of Salvador Allende, and then... Turning Chile in the 1970s into a laboratory for what is now called neoliberalism, but this was really the first country where these policies were attempted in the aftermath of this shocking coup, uh, the death of Salvador Allende, the the, 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 uh, U.S.-backed coup, and then um, all of these economists who'd been trained at the University of Chicago— were handed control over the economy. And they privatized the school system, introduced a voucher system. Betsy DeVos would have been very pleased with it. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, they privatized very rapidly Chile's economy, deregulated, created all kinds of bubbles that then burst. Um, Milton Friedman was an advisor to, to, to Pinochet. And so there are three kinds of shocks that I look at in the shock doctrine. One is the shock that creates the context for the economic shock therapy, and the third are shocks to bodies—the literal shocks, the shock of torture, the shock mm. of tasers, the shock of repression. Because when you know when societies do not behave, do not um, do not follow the dictates of of of, of these earlier shocks there is often another form of repression that follows and and it's it's a pretty bloody history
2: and today you just released a video uh called how to resist trump's shock doctrine which i think seems like your way of saying like yes this is bad but let's let's try to get through this what are the ways you think we should we can resist it
0: Right. So, you know, the reason why why I produced – you know, just really rushed out this new book – it usually takes me five years to write a book. This took me less than five months is because I really am worried as bad as um, – you know, as bad as what we've seen from the Trump administration is, and it's really bad. I – you know, I know this is awfully depressing, but, I, you know, I do – I do really fear that this is not the worst of what we will experience under this administration and that there's this idea that has taken hold that they're sort of so bumbling and incompetent and it's just chaos that we can almost relax. And there's almost this, um, you know, I've heard this analysis that, you know, after the Muslim travel ban was defeated. Uh, Trump has, you know, become more moderate. I don't know if you guys have sort of heard the, mm. this idea that he's been chastened, and maybe you know Jared and Ivanka are successfully bringing him to the center in some way, um, into the mainstream. And I just don't think that's true. And, and what and what I'm really worried about is that the policies that they are introducing are are creating conditions. Where shocks are more likely, right? I mean, they they're getting rid of Dodd Frank, which is the the legislation that was introduced after the 2008 financial crisis to prevent another such crisis. Um, So, you know, when you do that, it's easier to have market bubbles inflate and then burst and then, you know, uh, have bank bailouts that create economic crises that would then, you know, be the pretext to privatize Social Security, to privatize the school system, to tick off things on the toxic to-do list that they haven't been able to do yet. And, you know, when the London terrorist attacks happened just recently, we saw, you know, Trump showed his hand. He immediately said, uh, you know, this is why we need the Muslim travel ban. I mean, after having said it wasn't a travel ban, right? Um, and, uh, you know, he took advantage of the Manchester attacks to say, uh, you know, this is because immigrants are flooding across our borders, even though the, the, the bomber in that case had been born in the UK. So they are going to take advantage of whatever shocks come their way, and they are taking actions that make shocks more likely, including an incredibly belligerent uh, uh, foreign policy, escalation of multiple multiple theaters of war um the muslim ban itself is a provocation isis described it as a blessed ban so we mm. need to prepare for what they're going to do and the first step in preparing is to know what they will try to push through and how they will try to push it through and i you know i think we could expect uh, a state of emergency of some kind to be declared banning protests you know uh, and i say this you know, because this is what we've seen in other countries in France, a, a country with a deep democratic tradition with a long history of militant strikes um, and protests when 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 Paris was hit by those horrific terrorist attacks two years ago. The French government under François Hollande, which is a socialist party, introduced a state of emergency that has not been lifted since, which Mm. means they can revoke constitutional protections. For a long time, it was illegal to have a political protest of more than five people. So when you think about what happened when the travel ban was introduced... Those types of protests that block roads that block airports, those would be the types of protests that they would say are a threat to national security um, are that would themselves become targets or terrorists, so we have to ban them mm. and so what i'm saying you know in this in this little toolkit for shock resistance is it's so important in that moment when they're trying to take away people 's right to protest their right to free speech. For there to just be strength in numbers, it can't be left to the most vulnerable communities. It can't be left to um, immigrant communities to defend their rights because there there the, there will be extreme repression. It has to be. The types of numbers we saw come out for the Women's March, right? And you know, I give some examples in the video of, of of and some great footage from Spain and Argentina, Tunisia, where governments have tried to impose curfews, states of emergencies, and states of crisis. And there has been this sort of flooding of the streets where people just said no, but they did it because they had a historical memory of. Usually, a membership of di- a member, uh, a memory of dictatorship in the past, like Franco's dictatorship in Spain or, um, uh, or or the the 1976 coup in Argentina, there was a historical memory where people said, "Oh, they're trying to do it again," and mm. this is how it starts. They say they're worried about your safety um, and that you should stay in your home and be good. And people just said, "No," you know. So I really wanted to bring that message to Americans because I worry that there isn't that kind of historical memory here.
2: We'll be right back after we take
1: care of some business and some business. All right, back to the show. I mean, because for me, like when you were saying that, like, like Pinochet, it's it's on a lesser level. But I think of nine eleven and all the stuff that happened uh, after nine eleven, whether it was deportations and detentions and civil liberties being, uh, you know, uh, withheld, <laughs> being. Um, I mean, clearly, I I feel like. Is that where our institutional memory potentially can help us, right? Like that. Because it felt like to me, when all those people went to the airport, and it wasn't just people of color, it wasn't just immigrants or the child, children of immigrants, it was a lot of people. And it wasn't like it was organized. A lot like there's a lot of people I, I you know, I, that I knew that were like, I just got into a car and I went, and there was already a thousand people there. There's a certain muscle memory that I think comes from uh, that kind of oppression. So. I mean is that is do you see that as something that will help us in addition to black lives matter in addition to occupy and all the things that we have done you know basically to train for this moment
0: Absolutely and and the communities that have kept Memories alive, um, like the Japanese Japanese American community that has that memory of in, uh, of internment and, and, and the memory of how the Pearl Harbor attacks was the crisis was the shock that became the pretext to strip people of their rights. Um, you know, I think the Latino community has kept alive the memory of how the Great Depression and the and 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 the hardship of the Great Depression was the pretext for mass deportations of Mexicans uh, um, during the Great Depression. But but and I think nine eleven was maybe the first time where the memory reached beyond the most targeted communities and, and and created what what you describe as this as this muscle memory, and I do think I think it is helping and 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 I think we just have to draw out draw out remember I think we saw it in the UK just now where people remember what happened after 9/11, Tony Blair taking the country into an illegal war. Um, remember the loss of privacy, civil liberties, uh, you know, it wasn't just in the US where that happened, right? It happened in the UK. Massive increase in the surveil in surveillance in that country. Um, massive increase in in, in military intervention. Theresa May, during during the last election campaign that just wrapped up in the UK, she tried to do the exact same thing. She said, "Maybe we have to change the human rights law. Mm. Maybe we have to take away your privacy online. We need backdoors to all your apps." Jeremy Corbyn said, "We need to admit that the whole war on terror paradigm is failing. We need to get at the root causes." Um, and, uh, and and and. Theresa May's attempts to exploit that crisis, I think because there is that memory of what happened after 9-11 mm-hmm. and also there's the blitz memory and this sort of identity in the UK of like we are the people who stay calm in a crisis um, and, and, and don't lose our heads. You know, all of that helped and I think it hurt Theresa May during the election. There's almost
1: an inventing or a framing of things as shocks. Like this, this will happen. This is, this is a vulnerability. You didn't see it as a vulnerability, but this is what they're doing right now. Is that, is that one way to see it?
0: Well, I mean, I think we need to just engage in some pattern recognition. Understand, right. you know, when, when these shocks happen, if any leader who who tries to tell you that everything you used to know no longer applies is not to be trusted. You know, yeah. one of the things I remember most about that, that post 9-11 period was you know, that phrase – Post that's pre 11 thinking. Do you remember that phrase? They yes. used to yeah. say it all the time. It is, it is such a dangerous idea. It's saying you're a blank slate, right? Hmm. You're putty in our hands. Whatever you thought, whatever you thought you knew about the world, no longer applies in this new world, right? So, so we're children. We're children. And we're we're born anew, right? right? And and our daddy is Dick Cheney. Right. <laughs> History starts today. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. yeah. Dick Cheney. ew, right? Mm. Well, you know. Um, Jeff Sessions, Steve Bannon, right? Um, th- this this is the breach. You know, I mean, you think about Giuliani, the people who surround Trump. The fact that he has, you know, Eric Prince uh, uh, as an advisor. Uh, and, you know, I know you had Jeremy Skahill here talking about that history, um, and 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 present. Um, so 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 so, you know, I think we need to be very careful about this idea that this administration is incompetent. That because meanwhile. As the Trump show unfolds, right, on all eyes, you know, or on Sessions and Comey and and this idea that that Trump is just like nonstop stepping in it, right, we are not seeing nearly enough of this very methodical transfer of wealth that is happening um, behind the scenes. And it's really the connective tissue between what they're doing with their tax policy, um, 15% Uh, corporate tax, a massive giveaway, getting rid of the estate tax, which is a gift to billionaires, Um, what they're doing with climate policies, which is a gift to the fossil fuel industry and the banks that fund them, what they're doing with banking regulation. I mean, this is very orderly. It's very organized. They're ticking off the items on the the wish list, right? Mm -hmm. But they're not able to do everything. They can't get rid of Social Security altogether, and that they need a crisis for. And I'm not saying they're cooking up the crises, but I am saying that they're comfortable with crises, and they understand the utility of crisis.
2: So we're not going full Alex Jones uh, hoax, false flag There,
0: I just think, you know, it's prudent to prepare, <laughs> you know, to engage <laughs> yes. in a little intellectual disaster preparedness. You know, what one of the things that really um, got my attention is – so when, when I wrote The Shock Doctrine – I began and ended with Hurricane Katrina because Hurricane Katrina is the ultimate example of what I call the shock doctrine because uh, that city was still partially underwater, uh, when there was a meeting in Washington at the at the at the offices of the Heritage Foundation, a very right wing think tank that is advising the Trump administration, basically he's outsourced his budgeting to the to the Heritage Foundation. Um, it was it was chaired by the, the Republican Study Group, which is a, a group of right wing lawmakers in Washington. And they came up with a wish list of what they called free market solutions to Hurricane Katrina, privatize the school system, get rid of public housing, replace it with so-called mixed-use housing, Uh, create a tax-free, free free enterprise zone, build more oil refineries, drill for oil in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. It's an incredible document because it's like here you have this disaster that was created uh, by the intersection of heavy weather linked to climate change, warmer oceans, stronger storms, intersecting with a weak and neglected public sphere the levees were not fixed they were allowed to, to crumble FEMA couldn't find New Orleans apparently for five days mm-hmm. um, overlaid with institutional racism at every level so so the, so the the victims of that were blamed called looters animals on Fox News right that was the toxic cocktail and the so-called solutions that that were cooked up at the Heritage Foundation that night what um, were, were Let's get rid of the public sphere altogether, and let's drill for more oil and fuel. Kind of change, <laughs> right? And the, and and so when when Trump appointed uh, Mike Pence as his VP, I thought, where do I know that name from? And what I remembered was his name was at the bottom of that list because he was chair of that meeting. He was chair oh. of the Republican Study Group. So you know, all, all I'm saying is just like. Look at these. Look at look at their history. Look at what they've done in the past. Look at how they made their money. You know, um, Donald Trump. His first big real estate deal was New York in the nineteen seventies, in the midst of a massive debt crisis, where he was able to extract these predatory terms from the city of New York in the midst of crisis.
1: Right. They are the products of this country. This doesn't come out of nowhere. This comes from years and years of, uh, of trends and things that have happened to let them be in this position. We talked briefly uh, about um about what we can do and i think Kamal, you had a question
2: yeah because because i think one thing i think of when when you know and you mentioned other communities that have dealt with this and have a sense memory of this like the latino communities and certainly the black community does is that on the left whatever that means right now there's sort of two discussions happening and there's like the uh things are going to get so bad things are going to get so bad and then there's like the left that's like Communities like the south side of Chicago or the west side of Chicago or the Mission District in San Francisco, in large part, or other neighborhoods and cities where they're like, things have already been bad, you know? Yeah. And I mean, it's yeah. famously, it was like that SNL sketch that Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle did where the white people in the room were like, oh my God, what are we going to do? <laughs> and they're like, oh, is it, you, you scared now, you know? So, how do we yeah. have that conversation? How do we make sure that we're in, that when sort of people who are, basically living somewhat comfortable lives or suddenly afraid of how bad they're going to get, that they're thinking about the people who've already been living this horrible America?
0: Well, I think we there have to be movements that are led by the people who are most impacted and carry that memory and that knowledge with them uh, because it's their lives and it's the stories that they grew up with. I think it makes, it, it makes a huge difference. Um, you know, and this is why you know i think it's so critical that we question this idea of just being the resistance right because because the posture of just resistance implies that where you know it, where we were before trump if we repel every one of the mm. blows we're in some kind of a safe place but but there was a there were many crises states of crises that predated trump right so mm. even if Every single defensive battle was won and we know that that is not happening and that it can't happen. There will be wins, there will be losses, but even if in some amazing world every defensive victory was won, we would still be standing on the ground that where we were before we had Trump and that was the ground that produced Trump and that was not safe right, right. And, and that was the ground in which social movements like black lives matters were surging yeah. um and and the climate justice movement was surging because you know we're out of time on that front so we somehow need it, to, to fight defense and offense at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to end up somewhere that is different and better than where we were before Trump.
2: It's basically like you that talk- movie The Devil's Advocate with Keanu Reeves and Al Pacino where it ends, and you're like, yeah, he won, and then Al Pacino shows up with the devil again. Hey, here I am. Let's start it all over again.
0: <laughs> and
2: am I, I know, the one who watches that are... movie every time it's on TBS? It's just <laughs> yeah, me? I was
1: like, uh, Google, Google that movie right now. <laughs>
0: I think I may have seen the movie. (laughs) But Um,
2: just the idea of the movie is that it's like this battle with the devil. And at the end, Keanu Reeves is very like, I won, whoa. And then the devil shows up at the very end of the movie, implying, like, we're going to do this all again. So I'm saying that, like, if we, to sort of support what you're saying, if we defeat Trump at every turn, we still have the South Side of Chicago, the West Side of Chicago, we still have the Bronx, we still have all these neighborhoods, we still have Appalachia, we still have uh, poverty in the South. There's all these things that, like you said, produced him. So it would just be. The next reality show, TV game show host to be president,
0: or worse, right? Because I, I, mean, as bad as Trump is, I do believe there's worse than Trump. Um, and, 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 and this is why it's, I think it's particularly worrying. And you know, one of the, th- I think one of the threads that created Trump, is, is this idea that billionaires are going to save us, right? That we mm. can outsource the world's problems to benevolent billionaires who, um who because they made a whole lot of money in one area uh, you know are, are some sort of magical creatures who automatically know how to fix everything like right. take bill gates you know he seemed knew a lot about creating a quasi software monopoly i will give him that you know um, but why he should have the power he has over the us school system um, because he has thrown so much money as a philanthropist at, at us school system I mean, he's completely changed education in this country he is a massive influence in healthcare uh, internationally. He's more powerful than the the World Health Organization and that is treated as, you know, that's the benevolent billionaire Mm. mythology. And, 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 you know, I think that the bestowing on billionaires, whether it is Richard Branson's going to solve climate change along with Michael Bloomberg, yeah. you know, and Bill Gates is going to take education and hunger in Africa, <laughs> and Bono's going to somehow help with all of it, you know. Um, Bono like will this, write a
2: song was, to unite them all. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, that that this created the ground for Donald for Donald Trump. It was it is part it was one of the roads that lead to Trump. It's not the only one, but it, but it's an important one because that allowed. It to somehow be a credible pitch to the American people of like my only qualification for this job is I'm really rich. Yeah, rich right? white savior. Exactly, and yeah. and and so that idea comes from somewhere, and you know Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton are not spectators in this. I mean, the Clinton Foundation um, was ground zero for this idea of um, there is no problem that cannot be solved by bringing the right benevolent millionaire together with the right policymakers. Blessed by A-list celebrities. I mean, that is what the Clinton, um, the the the, um, the the Davos on the Hudson, as it was as their yeah. annual uh, uh, Clinton Global Initiative was called uh, gathering, and um, and so the reason why I raise this is because I actually hear people saying, well, maybe Oprah should run, or we should get Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> or you know, maybe Elon Musk can save us, and I just think maybe not like maybe we should (laughs) we should stop looking to this we should stop treating politicians like celebrities like that is not helping
2: but is that feasible, like, I think with the election coming in 2020? Like, I, I sort of feel like I kind of understand and I know that I kind of understand that You people... think
0: Elon's going to save us, don't you?
2: No, 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 no. I got to—I'm going a different way. It, I, I'm sort of, sort of lightly investigating uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson 2020. I'm lightly, <laughs> lightly investigating it just because I feel like I get the need to go—we need a better— face on our side like just to get us through the next lane and then we'll go back to grassroots is what i'm saying i sort of understand why the left would be like maybe we need to get you know it's like it's like every superhero movie we need a hero to match this villain you know
0: i'm not selling you on dwayne the rock
2: johnson 2020
0: (laughs) (laughs) um and you know, there are some amazing <laughs> pro wrestlers out there who I've met on Twitter. Um, and, I mean, there's, there's I'm not no saying
2: I believe that it's that that he will say, it, but I sort of get why people would go. Okay, well, if this is the game, like I, I get why people who sort of think of this now as like it has become professional wrestling. Trump was actually did stuff in the WWE. Maybe
0: mm-hmm.
2: if we're not Hall of Fame, yeah, he's in the Hall <laughs> of Fame. <laughs> so yeah. if we're going to like. If here's the question: If it's like Joe Biden 2020 or Dwayne the Rock Johnson 2020,
0: yeah, okay. If those are the choices on the table, <laughs> I think you may very well be right. Okay, but I, but uh, but I'm I'm hoping we don't go this route. Like, you know, I was on Morning Joe the other the other day, we very weirdly, um, <laughs> so weirdly, right? Um, but 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 they were saying well, what about this Macron guy in France, right, who is, like, he, he just won an election and maybe we need to find our own Macron. And I just said, like, his name's Barack Obama. Like, you did that did happen in, in this country. And, and and you know, there are many forces that produce Trump, but I think one of them is the failure of neoliberal economics to tangibly improve lives for a lot of people, and a lot of people checked out on the Democratic side. Mm-hmm. Um, so... You know, I'm I, I'm interested in what just happened in the UK, where you know this really anti politician Jeremy Corbyn did way better than anybody expected. I mean, like as far from the rock as you could get <laughs> as a politician. You're not going to you know. get me off the rock, Naomi. I'm going <laughs> to. I look, look if 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 the choices are the rock and Joe Biden, I'm 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 with you. I, I'm with sure <laughs> you. But I think there, I think there. The may... choices
1: might be that, which is very frightening.
0: Um, but what was interesting about what just happened in the, in the UK is it was almost like the, the what mattered about, uh, about Jeremy Corbyn is that he's honest. Um, he didn't seem to be trying to sell people a bill of goods. And he came up with a platform that were like, you're going to have free college tuition um, and debt forgiveness for students and well-funded public health care and fewer wars and – people liked those ideas and they thought he was a credible messenger for those ideas so you know I mean I don't know whether the, this shift can happen in time for the next electoral cycle in this country but I, I really do think that you know Trump should be seen as a warning you know he, he he it's this mirror that's being held up to our culture and it's like this all roads lead here mm. and and I think what we should be doing is swerving in the face of that mirror and trying some other, Ideas instead of just doubling down and trying to out Trump Trump at his own game because it's really, it's actually really hard to out Trump Trump at his own game. He's very good at branding.
1: Hmm. I mean, you talk about hollow brands uh, in your previous books, and you know that's what Trump is, isn't he? Like he's a hollow brand. He's he there. There is no substance. It's all built about his name and his name. Uh, you know, carrying the weight. Like this is what success looks like. It's Trump. When you think money, you think Trump. When you think the boss, you think Trump. Um, is that why it's, it seems impossible to pin him down it's impossible no scandal seems to to knock him off course because well you do what you have to do in your Trump
0: well he is he is he's he has entered politics playing by a completely different set of rules he's not playing by the rules of politics he's playing by the rules of branding his right. brand has swallowed the US government he's the first fully commercialized brand to become president and um, and 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 this is not anything we've seen before. Yes, there have been presidents with business conflicts of interest. That is not the same as what Trump has done by, by turning the White House into an extension of the Trump brand. And the thing to understand about what companies like the Trump organization are doing is they're not traditional they're not they're not traditional companies. They are not selling a product. They're not, you know, his business is not building buildings. His business is selling an idea. Right. Mm. So, you know, for Nike, the idea that they sell is transcendence through sports. You know, Apple sells revolution or they used to sell revolution. Starbucks sells community. Trump sells impunity. Mm. Right. He sells impunity through wealth. That is the promise. So if you're rich enough, if you, if you, I can help you be like me, that's the promise of the Apprentice. It's the promise of every book he's ever quote unquote written. It's the promise of Trump University. I will make you like me. Quote unquote University. Sorry, you have to put air quotes around right, 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 right. <laughs> all of these things. Um, but this is what he's been selling now for, for for 3 decades and it's a it's an increasingly seductive sales pitch the the more unequal the society becomes you know the 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 you know the opening shot of The Apprentice is a guy sleeping rough on the streets of New York, and then it pans over to Trump in the limousine, right? Who do you want to be? The guy sleeping on the street, or do you want to be Trump, right? Like, oh my this God, is, I've the, never this seen. This the I just like I've
2: never seen The Apprentice. <laughs> I was like, I didn't know that. <laughs> wow,
0: it's really insidious. And I did. You know, I had only seen a few episodes. You know, or not even whole episodes. Favorite guilt watching watch TV. Favorite show. I mean, did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and but it was enlightening because this was televised class warfare. I hadn't yeah. really focused on yeah. that before. You know, turning uh, mass layoffs into mass entertainment. I mean, you got to hand it to him uh, for, for 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 doing that. I mean, this is the whole genre of reality TV is sort of. Um, you know, it's kind of capitalist burlesque, right? right? Like you've got a group of people who you you train to turn on each other for a pot of gold at the end. But before The Apprentice, there was some pretext that they were doing something else, like competing on an island. It was there was <laughs> something else going on. But then yeah. Trump was just like, "No, this is about capitalism, and I'm yeah. the ultimate capitalist." Right? I can
1: only imagine what you think of undercover boss.
0: Um, the, uh, well, I'll come back to that. Okay, but just to answer <laughs> next time the you're question, on, right, we'll so, we'll go through all the, the capitalistic
2: pro- reality shows, Shark Tank. <laughs>
0: Oh, sure, thank. <laughs> let's do that. But so, the, so the problem is, you know, if he had a brand with morals and he was playing by the rules of branding, right. um, Then, there, then it would be easier to hold him accountable. But because he designed a brand that is all about what you can get away with if you're rich enough, right. you think about what he said on that Access Hollywood tape. You can grab him, you know. Yeah, if yeah. you're rich enough, if you're, if you, you know, if you're a celebrity, you can get away with it, right? Um, so that's what he's been selling. And so everything he gets away with, every every scandal um, that he gets away with in office is reinforcing his brand. It doesn't make his base turn on him. It makes them identify with this aspiration of the all-powerful boss.
1: Right. And you're, so you're saying that, like, his brand was being a piece of shit. Be a piece of shit to get you where you want to go. So why are we surprised he's being shitty? Everyone's like, yeah.
0: Be careful, yeah, Hari. Right. I
1: got a guy I know
2: fired from CNN. Same. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, man! I mean, yeah, I mean that moment on the campaign trail where he said, "I, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue." Right? He yeah. he knows exactly what's going on. But there are ways to hurt his brand. That's why he gets so upset by you know the President Bannon memes and the you know and the, the you know if you if if people start saying he's not the boss, that gets his attention, right? Right. Um, uh, you know, but but being a mean boss or a bad boss or you know a lying boss, that you could care less about that
2: because we mean, all want to be a jerk. is I mean, on
1: some level, that's what he's selling. Oh, I wish I could be a mean boss. I wish I could shoot and people. still win. In the book, you talk about um you know how bad this could get, whether it's climate change. I mean, we just recently pulled out of the Paris Accords. Whether it's um you know whether it's if there is another terrorist attack whether there's a financial crisis how those shocks could potentially lead to far worse than where we are right now uh there are so many terrible possibilities that could happen but before we go i mean w- where is the hope where are we where are we going what do we have to do because i know you talk about people's platforms in the book you talk about intersectionality can you tell us wh- what do we do where do we go
0: right so i mean the reason why I, I, I called the book No is Not Enough is because I've been covering these shocks and crises and I've seen societies come together and say no to attempts to exploit shocks and crises. Um, they can slow, you can slow it down um, in, in those moments. But but if if there isn't an alternate plan, if, if you aren't putting forward another idea, you know, of how to rebuild New Orleans in the interest of the people so that we don't, aren't hit by by shocks like this in the future, you know, Turn New Orleans into a model of a just green transition, um, create huge numbers of local jobs. Uh, you know, people were talking about this at the time at the grassroots level, but you know, there's something kind of, I'll tell you, like for a long time in the environmental movement, and I'm you know part of the climate justice movement myself, is that there was this feeling of like, well, that would be too opportunistic in those moments. Like people, you know, you don't want to. To you know, in mo- in moments of of shock and trauma, it, it sort of feels wrong to be going in there and saying this is what we should be doing instead. Uh, we can't be timid in these moments. Like these shocks are messages that our system is failing. Right? I mean, if if a market collapses because of a, bu- a bubble has burst, it's because there is a problem with the system, and we need to get at the underlying causes of that. Um, so yeah, I think in this moment, what one of the things that that we need are, are is more leadership from below, and and there are examples of this. The the movement for Black Lives, vision for Black Lives, it is a people's platform. It's a it's, it it is a vision for a different kind of economy. It is not just addressing police violence, although it is addressing that. I mean, it is calling for reparations, for slavery and Jim Crow. It is calling for a fair tax system. Um, it is calling for environmental justice and the concrete policies uh, that go with every one of these. In, in the, and in in the book, I talk about some other examples of this, including one that I've been involved in um, called the Leap Manifesto. If people want to learn about it, they can go to theleap.org. Um, we came, drafted this, this people's platform that basically is, is comes from the standpoint of we live in a time of overlapping crises. They are all urgent. There is n- no use in playing my crisis is bigger than your crisis. They're mm-hmm. all urgent. And what we need are integrated and intersectional solutions to these overlapping crises. So we have to d- design and fight for policies that radically bring down emissions in line with what the scientists are telling us we need to do and what the engineers are telling us we can do, if we're going to change the way we power our economies and change the way we move ourselves around our transportation systems and redesign our cities, why wouldn't we seize that opportunity to have a fair economy at the same time? So how about if we had community controlled renewable energy um, so that the profits from generating renewable energy stayed in communities to pay for universal childcare or, and how about if we committed That the communities that have been on the front lines of the dirtiest forms of fossil fuel extraction have had the refineries in their backyards, have had their um, lands uh, uh, um, ravaged by mining um, and pipelines like the Dakota Access Pipelines. And these are overwhelmingly indigenous communities and other communities of color must be first in line to own and control their own renewable energy project. They shouldn't have to do it by Kickstarter and going to foundations. This should be government policy. It should be tax money as a drop in the ocean of what we call energy reparations. Um, So this is just one example of, uh, of the, the, you know, what I think needs to happen. And there's lots of other uh, people saying the same thing. I mean, I don't claim to have figured this out on my own. Um, I think there's a, a moment where on the left we're seeing a revival of the utopian imagination right mm. for which is has really atrophied we haven't we haven't been very good at at talking about the world we need when we wrote the leap manifesto we had this meeting of 60 movement organizers and it was like we like we realized we'd never done this before like we'd come together to say no to all kinds of stuff no to this free trade deal no to that politician no to this policy no to this security law whatever it was but we but 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 here we were in a room and we're like, "Well, what do we want? What do we actually want? What does mm-hmm. the world look like when we win?" And it was like scary, like we had not said some of this stuff out loud. And it was like it was it was hard, uh, but it was an incredibly rewarding process. And I think we need to in these times when we absolutely have to be resisting and we absolutely have to be saying no, um and we have to be running candidates. We have to be doing all of that. Right. I think we also have to save just a little bit of space to dream about yeah. the yeah. world that we want instead, because that's when it's going to keep people in the fight. You know, it's it's you know he's not even been in office for a year, and people are already a lot of people are already feeling burnt out. And I think part of that is that the energy of no doesn't sustain movements alone. There has to be an energy of the world we want to the yes
1: right the offense as opposed to the defense mm-hmm.
2: yeah. now we thank you for sitting with us today and next time you're on we will talk about the solutions uh dwayne the rock johnson 2020
0: <laughs> <laughs> i'm looking forward to that and, <laughs> and we'll when, also- when is he gonna, when is he going to be on politically reactive
1: uh, that is a very fair question it's a very fair question one that will probably go <laughs> unanswered <laughs> <laughs> I said we start bringing in other professional wrestlers to call him out, and then we'll get Dwayne The Rock Johnson. I think that's how we out. I've a good got point. a few
0: who follow me on Twitter. Do you know. actually? I do. I do. Some who of those dudes are woke. I get some
2: MMA people yes. following me, too.
0: Yeah, what? I'll I'll tell you after. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
2: All right. <laughs> You'll <laughs> help like, us Wait build- a minute!
0: <laughs> There's someone following me with f- five million followers. What's going on? Yeah.
2: That's amazing.
1: Yeah, that-, that is amazing. Yeah.
2: Well, thank you again, and we'll also go over your favorite uh, capitalistic reality shows next time you're on too. So, thank you for yes. yes. Thank you okay, for joining us today. To that.
0: Thank you. Bye. Bye.
1: Hurry! What'd you learn today? I heard that Naomi Klein, who listens to our show regularly, which should be on every advertisement of the show, uh, thought that Jake Tapper said the truest thing about why the Democrats lost on our show, which is amazing. Yes. Amazing, like for so many reasons. Um, but just the idea of, do Democrats, do you need all the money? <laughs> How much money do you need? is so good.
2: I learned that we haven't seen the worst from Trump because the worst is yet
1: to come. Yay! Oh well, that's that was good. I mean, it's I mean it's good that we know that because it also like allows us to plan for a resistance, right? That's such a big part of this. Like, okay, what what do we do? And it's not just resistance, which is another thing I learned is that we can't just resist. We can't just be on the defense because that just brings us back to where we were before, which was not necessarily good because that led us here. We need to to think offensively. What do we want? What is our agenda? What is our platform? And how are we going to push that
2: forward? And at that time, I learned that neither one of you has seen the movie The Devil's Advocate as
1: much as I have. Who was in that movie? Was that uh, John Cusack? I always assume John Cusack is in things. (laughs) I I learned that we should all emphasize Trump is not the boss of us. That upsets him. He wants to be the boss. That's funny. But there is only one boss. Well, two. God and Bruce Springsteen. Am I right? Am I right, middle middle-aged white dudes trying to appeal to you try to get that middle-aged white dude money Bruce Springsteen's the boss, right? He's not my he's not my fucking boss, come on. I think I
2: learned that Craig Hodges still feels like he could play in the NBA right now.
1: And I learned that the Chicago Bulls knew what Craig was going to do because that's who Craig is. And he was true to himself.
2: And I learned that I could be mature and have a conversation with a member of the 1991-92 Chicago Bulls basketball team and not say the words Michael Jordan even one time.
1: And I learned that I could talk to somebody from the 91-92 Bulls team and not get angry because the Knicks never won a championship, and it's garbage. It's not fair. It's not fair.
2: And I learned that the Knicks still suck.
1: You really just learned that? You just learned that right now? ha, ha, ha,
2: ha. It hurts, doesn't it? It hurts. Yeah. That's going to do it for our show. Thanks again to Naomi Klein. Go pick up her new book, No Is Not Enough, wherever books are sold, for however long we decide to sell books. Also, check out her book events at NaomiKlein.org. N-A-O-M-I-K-L-E-I-N.org.
1: And thanks again to Craig Hodges. Please check out his book, Long Shot, The Triumphs and Struggles of an NBA Freedom Fighter. And thanks to all of you who have commented on Twitter using the hashtag politically reactive. Just keep doing that. Check us out on Facebook. We got an Instagram page. You know, the usual.
2: We also want to tell you about what else we're up to. My new book is still out, The Awkward Thoughts of W. Kamau Bell. Pick it up at your local bookstore or at wkamaubell.com. I also have live shows coming up in the next few weeks. You can listen to my live talk show on June 15th, 7 p.m. at KALW.org. That's called Kamau right now. You can see me do stand-up June 16th in Chicago. You can see me do stand-up June 17th in Grand Rapids. You can see me do stand-up June 18th in Detroit, Michigan. Go to wkamaubell.com for ticket information. Also, be on the lookout for the next episode of my CNN show, United Shades of America. I'm going to Appalachia. You can check it out Sundays at 10 p.m. Eastern and Pacific on CNN.
1: And I'll be touring, too, with my younger brother, Ashok, and our show, The Untitled Condobolo Brothers Project. We'll be in Cambridge, Massachusetts, at Improv Boston on June 18th and 19th. Both shows on the 19th are sold up, but there's still shows on Sunday the 18th. You catch us in Brooklyn, New York, at Littlefield on June 27th, and in Seattle, Washington, oh, Seattle, at the Theater Off Jackson on June 29th and 30th. And for my stand-up, you can see me in Salt Lake City on July 9th at Wise Guys. You can see me at July 12th in Phoenix at Stand Up Live. And July 13th through the 15th at the Denver Comedy Works. And then later in the summer, August 18th through the 20th in San Diego at American Comedy Company. August 24th to the 26th in Philadelphia at Helium Comedy Club. And finally, August 31st to September 2nd at Vermont Comedy Club in Burlington. The internet should tell you how to get to those, harikandibolu.com or Google or whatever it else takes. But yeah, you'll find me. You'll find me.
2: Politically Reactive is a production of Topic and distributed by Earwolf. Our executive producers are Lisa Lyongang and Lee Tal Malad. The show is produced by Max Jacobs, Laura Flynn, and Erica Moo. Thanks to extra help from Phil Circus. The show is engineered by Dan Gallucci. Also, give us a good rating on iTunes. It really helps send the word out about the show. I'd go with five whole stars.
1: And thanks, as always, to Brontes Purnell for providing music for the show. Thanks for listening to Politically Reactive.